Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. For as long as people have experienced events, had memories for those events, and had the language to describe those events, people have told each other stories. In recent years, stories have been a hot entertainment ticket as demonstrated by the strong attendance at such performances as Moth competitive story slams and Moth main stage events as well as Snap Judgment live shows. The radio broadcast and online podcast of these shows also have large devoted followings. Clearly, a lot of people enjoy telling live, true, first-person stories, and a lot of people enjoy listening. But how does one tell a good story? What's good advice for novice storytellers? As a former producer of live storytelling events, I've helped individual tellers to think about such issues. In this episode, I speak to three experts to get their thoughts. Two are experienced champion storytellers, and one is a researcher who studies stories. Our conversation is the basis of this episode, which is titled, Policy of Truth. As one way of organizing the, the, at least the first part of this conversation, each of you has had a chance to see some uh, rules of storytelling that I've crafted, and I want to throw them out and get your reactions uh, to them. And the first, first one that I want to, want to throw out is a rule that I call you are the holodeck. And so it's a reference to the holodeck on Star Trek where uh, the uh, characters could go and actually be transported to a different place from the Starship Enterprise. So they might find themselves uh, in the wild, wild west in a a gunfight, or uh, perhaps uh, they might become Sherlock Holmes uh, solving crimes in London. And so they were in their mind, actually transported to this place different from where they were. And for me, really effective storytelling involves that transportation where you're actually taking uh, the audience member. And even though they may be in a cafe listening to you and maybe the blender is whirring as they're making a smoothie for someone, maybe the phone rings, but at, at its best, a really well-told story takes the person to an to, to, and takes them to this other world and they don't even hear that phone ringing or at least I mean that's exaggerating it a bit but the idea is they're not sitting in this room with you they're actually seeing the sights and hearing the sounds in this world that you're conjuring uh, with your words and so when I actually do storytelling workshops that's one of the first things that I emphasize and I emphasize as one of the ways to do that vivid detail imagery as a way to conjure up the sense of transportation. When you are telling stories, do you try to create something like what I'm calling the sense of transportation on the part of your listeners? Uh, I would say absolutely. Yes. I think, uh, that's Peter Aguero. He is a storyteller and host for the moth as well as a moth grand slam champion. Additionally, he is the creator and performer of the one man show daddy issues that vivid detail of the thing that 
takes people to the place that I, I call in shorthand like the story trains, which is the same thing as what you just described. Um, I, I, it's, I, I just think it's a matter of being honest in your telling. So if part of the goal is to get people to kind of transport themselves to the time and the place of the story, uh, what I have to do as a teller is to transport myself to the time and place of the story. I, I try really hard to tell the story in the voice of the version of myself in the story. So it's like, it might be a little bit of maybe, you know, time travel or whatever. And I'm, I'm trying to speak in the voice uh, and the knowledge and the experience of that eight-year-old version of myself, 15-year-old version of myself, 27-year-old version of myself that doesn't know the same things I know today. Um, and not to let my current self intrude on the, you know, the past self that we're, you know, spending some time with. Uh, I finally do wake up the next morning. It's time to go to church and we, we all get all churched up. We go to church and then there's church. Afterwards, I go to light. I go to light a candle, not one of those little quarter candles, but the, like the big dollar candle because I need a little extra help. I go over, I, I kneel down, say, Hail Mary and Our Father. And like a remix for me to Jesus. I'm like, buddy, you got to help me out. I, you know, just make sure everything's going to be okay in your name. Fucking come on. And then we go home. My mom makes pancakes and they're delicious. So then afterwards, after we eat these pancakes, uh, it's getting to be about 2.30. It's time for me to go. So I go over to the, to the uh, closet. I get my uh, lighter winter jacket so I have more movement. I get my second favorite hat. It's red. And I go back out to the garage. I get my bike and I ride the 10 minutes over to Nellie's Pond. Push my bike through the little sliver of woods out to the middle of the ice. There's a league street hockey game that day, so I have the pond all to myself. And I'm standing there right in the middle at 3 o'clock looking up at the sky. And it's one of those slate gray winter skies that looks like you can reach up and grab a piece and you can put it and stick it in your pocket. It's one of those slate gray winter skies that just looks thick like soup. It's one of those slate gray winter skies that's so quiet that it's roaring and it's silent. So there I am all by myself, just me in the middle of the pond, just me and the quiet, roaring sky. Um, I think that's the... the the greatest one of the greatest uh gifts of storytelling is to be able to be transported and, and kind of taken somewhere uh with someone who you know is holding your hand and making sure that you're seeing all the stuff that they're seeing um and and to that end i kind of describe it when i'm teaching as uh the story is kind of like a, a film that's playing on the inside of your skull and you're describing it as closely as you can to the the people that are listening and if you if you do that with enough detail they'll they'll be right there with you they'll 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 go right with you and and so yeah that's that's i think is definitely one of the cornerstones well i remember listening to a story by shannon Kaysen, another moth grand slam champion and at one yeah, point, shannon's great oh yeah and, and at one point he's talking about a neighbor of his getting arrested in front of his little children. And yeah. there's this vivid picture he paints of the little girl uh, being held in the arms of a police officer, but he didn't just leave it at that. He described the contrast between the dark, between the dark blue of the police officer's uniform and the light pink of her nightgown. And for me, that was an example of a detail that didn't matter with respect to the plot but it was essential to 
taking me into that scene. Um, yeah. And here I want to clarify that the next person speaking in the interview is Tara Clancy. Tara is also a storyteller and host for The Moth, as well as a Moth Grand Slam champion. Additionally, Tara is an author. Among the things she's written is a memoir titled The Clancy's of Queens, and she is a panelist on NPR's quiz show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Here I want to read a brief excerpt from a story of Tara's that appeared in the New York Times. It's titled Hail Mary Softball, and it is about an all-girls softball team of which she was a member. And here I quote, Risking contusions and concussions, our thighs covered in bruises the size of watermelons, we were possessed by the spirit of the desperation play. To win, to prove that we could play as hard as the boys, as hard as each other, to shock the grandmas and annoy the moms, to impress the dads who made it to every game, and, maybe more so, the dads who only made it to a few. End quote. And here, Tara describes her approach to detail in stories. Whether I'm, when I'm writing a story, if it's going to be, you know, something published or whether I'm telling one, like the first thing I do is like sit down and try to remember it and see it in my mind as best as possible. Like I replay every little second of my memory and jot down all those kinds of things. Like you said with Shannon, that's an amazing detail. You know, the, the light pink compared to the dark blue of the uniform. So, you know, but you got to like give yourself a minute to really sit down and live in that memory you know, for a long, for a while. Um, and because things will, things will pop up, you know, we, you, you got to kind of sit in it for a little bit. Um, the only thing that I would add is when you're giving vivid detail, um, you know, be careful of, uh, I, I'm going to call them like writerly adjectives, you know, like there's a certain, oh, yeah. like from Queens, we're going to call this like hoity-toity talk, right? Like give me a break, you know, you are telling a story. If you, you know, when you're writing a story that's something different, certainly if you're writing fiction, if you want to flex that muscle uh, and show everybody how great you did on your verbal SATs, that's awesome, you know? Um, but, you know, when you're telling a story, like, remember that we, we don't use a lot of writerly adjectives when we're telling, and they, I find them distracting. So that's, that's my one advice on, like, scene-setting stuff to steer clear of, you know? So the first time that I ever heard the term transportation used with respect to narrative was when I was back in Columbus, Ohio as a graduate student. And I heard my fellow graduate student, Melanie Green, using this term. Melanie Green and I were both graduate students at Ohio State University, but Melanie is now a social psychologist and communications researcher at the University at Buffalo in New York. And Melanie, I have to confess that at the time I thought, "What is this? This is this is unusual." So <laughs> that was that was not a not an unusual reaction at the time. <laughs> yes. And so now I, I feel a bit sheepish uh, celebrating it as what I try to do, and and in each in their own way, what Peter and Tara also try to do. But I, I see its value now. But but I want to come back to you as a researcher now. You have now for decades studied narrative transportation. And my first question for you is, based on the work that you have done and that others have done, give us a sense, maybe just to give, give us a couple of examples of why transportation matters, or, or maybe another way to think of it is, what are the consequences for the listener 
or the reader of being transported? I think maybe a good place to start is to go back to our shared time at graduate school. And at the time at Ohio State, and I think still today, it was a, a center of people studying persuasion. So how do you create these messages that are going to change people in some way? But the main focus at that time was, okay, what kind of arguments do you need to use? And what are the characteristics of the audience members who are listening to that? And it was sort of very, um, the kind of thing that you would see in an editorial or an advertisement, sort of um, cogent reasons laid out, these sorts of things. And with transportation, where we started investigating it was, well, if you look around the world, it's not just these ads or these editorials that change us, it's stories also. Stories are something that grab us, that change the way we look, about, look at the world. And so we started investigating this, this state or this mental process of transportation as the way that this might happen. Because when you're sitting in that audience as a story listener, you're not you know, necessarily sitting back and critically evaluating these things. You want to be taken into that world. You want your emotions to be affected. And so that's the kind of thing that we've looked at experimentally with looking at transportation. So sort of bringing people into labs or looking out in real world situations. Okay, people have been exposed to this story and then we measure what they've thought about it, whether they think they were transported, and then looking at how they think about the world afterward. Have they changed at all in terms of what they believe about a social issue or a health topic or you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, one of the great things about stories is that they can address all kinds of different topics. In Maine, I am known as a dancer. I've taken dance classes. I've done the Frankenstein with boys at prom, you know, three feet away. But this man grabs me, puts his hand on my hip, he pulls me close. And, and I'm on fire. Like, every molecule in my body is alive. And I have no idea what to do. But at first, I'm playing it cool. We're going back, we're going forward. I'm paying attention. I can keep up with this. I know what's going on. Until he spins me out and pulls me back in. And I kind of trip over myself. And both my palms land on his manly chest. And I've never felt a manly chest. And I'm just, and I'm just like, I am undone. I have no idea what to do. And I look up, and he is looking down at me with this wolfish grin. And I suddenly understand what wolfish grin means. And I, I'm finished. Like, he, he keeps trying to dance with me, and, and it just means that he grabs my hip harder in order to steer me more effectively, but I am more clumsy because he's grabbing my hip harder. And the next thing I know, he just, he just stares down, and he backs me up. And he backs me up, and he backs me up, and he's smiling. And I'm terrified. I'm terrified. This is not the thrill I was looking for. I have no idea what to expect. And he grabs me, and he spins me around, and I land in the arms of a six-year-old woman who laughs and shakes her finger at the young man and grabs my hip the same way he did. And we started to dance. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I just have one more thing to say, uh, just in general about this, about the detail thing. Um, uh, one thing I think uh, that is important to remember is that a lot of the detail work, the preparation work that you do, is mostly for yourself as a teller. It, it's, I think it's folly to think you have to and should include every single detail uh, in the telling of a story. I think 
you pre- if you prepare these details to the the so your memory of the event is as close and detailed as as it can be then you'll be telling it from a place of uh like reality uh and your words will have much more weight it's it's what like uh, in acting it, they the teachers will call it you know like doing your emotional background work it's not stuff that you're necessarily gonna be expressing on the stage but it's stuff that's like happening inside of you that makes what is visible more visceral yeah i i i, I agree with that and then having to kind of weed some things out and pick what you know what, sort of what's the most illustrative of what you're trying to say but another fun thing i'll just add is that like if you really like one of my favorite things that happened to me was I was telling a story that I thought I had remembered every single thing about, but obviously this is always, you know, you're off the cuff. And I was in the middle of a story and I remembered a detail right there on the stage of a, of a little doorbell chime going off. And, uh, and yeah. it, it like popped into my mind. And, it, and so I, I said it, and it ended up being this kind of key thing, you know, that, um, that I hadn't, that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't remembered, but because I allowed myself really, when you're telling your story, Always, every time anew, even if it's something you're going to tell a couple times in your life, you know, um, you know, always go try to get back into that that space, you know, so that you're really living it and uh, and again, you know, sort of reliving it, and and some fun details will will come out, you know. For for me as a listener, one thing that uh, as a listener of stories over the years, one thing I've noticed is, so sometimes I've I've heard people tell these stories about these amazing life-changing events so traveling around the world they've been in combat like these amazing events have occurred but they've left out any details that painted a picture and it the story for me felt a little flat and then conversely i've seen tellers who have well an example comes to mind actually i recently saw um matthew dix tell a story and another moth grand slam champion and it's essentially just a story about a teacher and a little boy who's afraid to go down a slide. And it's about the teacher eventually uh, getting the boy down the slide. And it's no one's life is on the line. They're not traveling around the world. But Matthew paints a picture with such detail that this seemingly minuscule event becomes this really compelling story. And so. Those two extremes, for me, are two different uh, experiences. Emphasize the power of detail, but yeah. I want to shift to one thing that Peter said a moment ago when he was talking about emotional expression, and this goes to uh, the second of my rules that I want to talk about, and I call this one: uh, "Don't get high on your own supply." And <laughs> and here, what, what I'm talking about is when I'm doing the storytelling workshop, I actually emphasize to people that. Sometimes your emotional expression as a teller can actually block the audience's experience of transportation. Because if you break down in tears, they want to come up and take care of you in that room that they're actually in. But if you can dampen down your emotional expression and just let the words and the cadence and the inflection do the work, even if you're talking about a time in your past when you were upset, then that can actually move them there. And I also extend it to uh, humor. If there's something funny in in your story, don't laugh at it yourself. Let the 
content of what you're saying and the cadence and the inflection amuse them because they're not there to watch you laugh. They're there to laugh at your story. Any reactions to that? I mean, I think that's a tough balance, you know, Michael, I think it's a tough balance, right? Because I think you're, you, you know, you're, and you got to find it for yourself, right? But you want to be in the moment, you want to be, you know, and so you got to find this, you know, if you're, if you're in the moment, you might cry. Um, you don't want to like, go up there like a robot um, and, at this, and, and laugh too, you know, if the, the same thing. Something in your story might, you, you may not necessarily be laughing at yourself in the way like a stand-up comic would, you know, hit the punchline and laugh at themselves. But the memory might be something funny, you know, uh, and to you funny, you know, some image of yourself in your mind. Uh, and so I think I, I agree with you that it can be, it can kind of hijack a story of somebody completely, you know, comes out for, for a long period of time and indulges a lot of the emotion. But I think we also, you know, you got to say to you, you know, you've got to find, you know, some, some balance of being impromptu, being in the moment, being in, you know, it, allowing yourself to feel what you're feeling and be raw like that, um, you know, uh, as opposed to being robotic, and, you know. Um, I, so I just, I would just emphasize the balance, you know. Well, I, I, I do robotic very well, but uh, P- Peter, what do you think about my uh, don't get high on your own supply rule? I pretty much disagree with that. Um, okay. I, but, but, I mean, to Tara's point, I think you got to be honest and feeling what you're feeling. Uh, I think that it's totally okay to allow yourself to, you know, be affected by, if you're being open, to yourself and your experiences it's totally normal to allow yourself to you know react emotionally if if you're telling a story well it should be like the only the first and only time you told it even if you told it a hundred times like if you're allowing yourself the the emotional uh vulnerability and the and the the open um you know channel to your to your past that you could and should be allowing yourself to do the freshness of that can affect you and, and can bring you to an emotional place that could surprise you. Um, I think if, if something makes you laugh, then it's okay to laugh at it. If something makes you cry, it's okay to cry about it. If something makes you angry, it's okay to be angry about it. I think um, that what does happen that makes it problematic sometimes, because when we're telling stories, the agreement between the teller and the audience is uh, the audience is there because they know you're going to be honest with me. Yeah. So if you're like, that's the story. If you go to a stand-up club, the agreement is you're going to make me laugh every 17 seconds because that's what stand-up does generally. But like with story, you know, with storytelling in this, in this kind of form that we're talking about, that it's the only agreement is you're going to be honest with me. So if in yourself, you, you start something makes you want to cry, that's being honest. And I'm okay with that. However, it becomes problematic when someone is telling a story about an event or, you know, an emotional situation that they haven't processed yet. Yeah. And it becomes somewhat unsafe when someone is emotionally reacting to something that they don't have the space or the context or the perspective on yet. And like that, that is a different problem altogether that has to do with, uh, selecting the, the you know, self-knowledge and, and selecting the stories that you should be telling. Uh, generally, I try to, you know, not, if I've always had a kind of rule of thumb, try to keep like the last like three to four years of my life 
off uh, off of the stage until I get a couple years away from it so I can then have some perspective. I've been in situations where people are uh, telling stories about things they have not been through, haven't gotten through yet, I mean, and it's, it's, it's very uncomfortable and it takes you right out of it. But I've also uh, myself have been uh, overwhelmed at moments and, and been brought to tears by a memory. Uh, and at no point did it feel unsafe because it was something that maybe happened 20 years ago. And I was just, uh, instead of being upset about it now, uh, I'm, I was being upset about it like that, you know, 21 year old version of myself. And that was okay. You know, like, because there was a, and some of it is I've been doing this for a long time. And, and, you know, like, I guess as a, when you get to be a, you know, practice and things, it's a different idea. Uh, it's a different problem. It's, it's about making sure you're talking about things that are safe for you to talk about um, rather than worrying about uh, stopping yourself from feeling something. Peter, I can imagine that when you say that it's okay for someone to express emotions while telling, I can imagine that that could mean one of a couple of things. One thing that it could mean is you think that it, uh, it's okay because it does not actually diminish the transportation or story trance experience or it could mean that you think it does diminish it but that's okay in spite of that which of those if either are you saying um i think if if one of the biggest goals that we have is is uh connection and uh safety in, in our vulnerability uh with and especially emotional vulnerability it's what I, one of the things i think we all really want and strive for. Um, one of the goals of this personal storytelling is to be heard and be seen and to be vulnerable and to, to belong, to show that we belong. To that end, I have no problem with, uh, with allowing yourself to, to uh, express any emotion that you are feeling, uh, even if it is to, even if it takes somebody out of the story. Uh, like that's that's okay because you're being honest and i would much rather have someone be honest than have someone try to hold their emotions back i find it more distracting when they're trying to hold their emotions back and not allowing themselves to feel something that's way to me way more intrusive than actually expressing the emotion right well it's interesting because i think one of the important ways that we get transported or connect with stories is through some kind of connection with, in this case, the storyteller, in the case of other kinds of stories, um, a main character or something like that. And yeah, it seems like in this case, it really is, if it, if, if it tips over into something uncomfortable, like if you worry that somebody's just going to kind of lose it up there, then that really takes you out. So I, I think it is just a real balancing act because I, I completely agree with the idea that this honesty is a key part of it, but, you know, being able to do that in a way that's still, you know, under, in a way under control or maintaining the story so that you don't feel like, Ooh, now I'm uncomfortable. What's this person going to do? I, you know, are they going to need to step off the stage or, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. So, um, yeah, you have that kind of social piece in there that could make it too much. So I, I certainly agree with Peter that connection, uh, and I think, Melanie, you emphasize this as well, connection is important. But when I'm telling, there are 
two Michaels that are available to the audience. There's the Michael who's standing in the room in front of them. And then there's the Michael in the story. And I so want the audience to connect with the Michael in the story. That is the Mm -hmm. Michael in the past, the Michael in that place, uh, typically not the place where the story is being told. And so I actually suppress the uh, emotional expression of the Michael in the moment. And, And Peter, I'm hearing you say that you think you would be able to pick up on that and it would be distracting. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. I, I'm always distracted because you can tell when someone is, is trying to, you can, you can tell when someone is trying to suppress that. And it, it comes, it doesn't like, I think if you get to the point where you're worried about whether or not you should be expressing this emotion on stage, the horse is already out of the barn. Maybe that's a story you shouldn't be telling. Like, you know, like maybe it's, you, you made your selection of your, a story you should be telling uh, in error and maybe you should be telling something else. Like you should be, be able to be comfortable with, with your honesty and vulnerability, no matter what happens. And if it's something you're worried about, you know, your emotional honesty getting in the way, maybe that's something you shouldn't tell. That, that's just my opinion. And that's the way I've approached it. I, you know, and everybody has a different way of doing it, but that's, that's just where I'm coming from. Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ditto that. I'm gonna agree with that. And then I guess I also just to round out the conversation. You know, like I'm somebody who has to like really talk myself into it, being vulnerable enough. You know, like I have a hard time with that, right? Yeah, a little tough butch queens girl thing going on. And I gotta, you know, when it comes to the more emotional stories, I've gotta, you know, I gotta rally myself. And then I really have to ask myself that question like a few times. Am I ready to tell this story? There are stories I've been asked to tell that I haven't told, and I, you know, I'm just still not there. But then on the other side, if we let the pendulum swing, just because it's worth mentioning, you know, even worse to me than suppressing uh, emotion is feigning emotion, right. which. Fortunately, you see too. You know, you sort of when you have that feeling like somebody just went like, "Cue the tears." You know, you know that's 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 the thing I would steer clear of more than anything. You know, Um, because because that's that I find the most off-putting. You know, is when people kind of feign feign it. Um, That that feels terrible for an audience. You know, that becomes manipulation. Yeah, and like I don't want to be manipulated. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like all of these things, one of the things that we talk about um, with transportation is kind of, it's a process of mental simulation where as an audience member, you're kind of building this story world in your mind as the person's telling the story. And it's almost like, you know, you're on a train and the story's sort of building a track. And if there's something that like disrupts that track building, whether it's the sense that, oh, this person's just faking this emotion or, whoa, this person's really you know, getting into a bad place and I should be worried about them. Like either one of those things pull you out of that flow that the story is making. Cause they're sort of external to the story in a, in a bad way, even though they're related to the story because they are things that the teller's doing, they're not kind of part of that world that, that the teller is creating. I have long drawn a distinction between two kinds of storytelling each of which I think of as serving a very different function. Uh, and and that, that is, I've drawn, I've drawn a distinction between storytelling as theater and storytelling as therapy, where in the first case, the goal is to engage the audience. Maybe that means entertaining them. Uh, maybe it's 
not maybe entertainment's not the right word because it's not a funny story. It, it, it's it's just a story that is meant to really give them a sense that they were moved in a way that they wanted to be moved. But it's about the audience, whereas with storytelling as therapy, it's about serving the needs of the storyteller. Is that a distinction that? you each draw as well or and if so do you think it's a useful distinction or is it a distinction that you think is not particularly useful i mean i think if this is a you know what you know a, what to do and what not to do then it's good to draw the distinction because both of those things certainly exist you know you'll see a story that feels like it and, and by the way you know neither are a good idea can we can we say that right like okay. storytelling is theater and storytelling is therapy if those are your primary objectives you know that that's not a good idea you know that's not what we're going for here you know um but yeah i mean i would say i've i've seen both things um I, yeah i mean uh, you know if if therapy is what you're really looking for you should go to a therapist yeah I, I, you know, like I, I, I was when I started doing my daddy issue show. It, it's not a coincidence that I, I started going to therapy when I was started working on it because it was the most profound story about the relationship with and without my dad in my life is the most profound relationship that I have. I didn't think it was safe for me to think that I should uh, try to work this out and figure it out in front of people. So a lot of the work happened in therapy and in, in a private room and that informed what, what the intent of what I would be saying on stage. I think that the, if, if storytelling as therapy is like, you know, as far as like, uh, 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 help socially to help you feel more connected, to help you, you know, uh, be seen, to be heard, to give voice to your, to your self and your experiences that's totally cool but like it is if storytelling if you're using storytelling as therapy to work through problems in front of people that's not safe and that's not a good idea i just i, I think i yeah, there's definitely a, there's definitely a distinction between the two and there's definitely benefits to like and i just mentioned like you know it gives you it gives your your former self voice it allows you to be heard it gets you up in front of people allows you to connect with people allows you to share your vulnerability and that's all great but like that, i would say it's more therapeutic instead of therapy and maybe that's nitpicking but um you know i i it's it's i don't think it's a good idea to to bring things out for the first time to really think about them in front of other people I don't know if any of you have seen um, Hannah Gatsby's uh, performance, Nanette. Yes. Yeah. Oh, not yet, but <laughs> it is on my list. So I just saw it for the first time last week, and one of the things that it, it's a really striking performance, and it, it really it transitions from stand-up to storytelling, and really, I borrow a phrase from Shannon Kaysen, brutally honest. Uh, storytelling and one of her refrains as she makes that transition is she wants her story to at last be told properly and it, it seems yeah. peter that in it, it, taking that as uh as an accurate description of her, of her of her motivation it sounds as if 
that it's at least part, not therapy, but therapeutic in this, some of the senses you were describing, that is being heard, ha- having her former self and all of the- We have to remember, though, that that performance that's on Netflix is at the Sydney Opera House in front of probably 3,500 people, and it's not the first time she did the show. And she's yep. also been a performer, as she says, for 15 years. She probably had been, I don't know how long she'd been working on the net. Maybe it was a year, maybe it was two years, but like, you know, that, that is a big push. She's also a very seasoned, yeah. controlled professional. And like, that's that, the anger that she's dealing with in that show and the vulnerability that she's dealing with that show are not things that can happen right away. Right. Like that's, that's, I mean, that's a, a, an action of doing the show over and over and bombing and bringing it back and re- reworking it and allowing yourself the, the kindness to yourself to allow it to grow and, and change and not knowing that it's not ever going to be perfect. And you can see the way she leaves when she leaves the stage. Yeah. I mean, they, they show it that she leaves the stage and ends up having tea with her dogs on the couch. But like, it's, you know, like she's exhausted and uh, is done with it at the end of it. And like that, I think she set out to, to do that and that's what she did but it's it's because she's a she's an absolute professional so like it's it's that wasn't the first performance of the show you know i think that's a great point because um there's a lot of research by social psychologist jamie pennebaker on how expressive writing just writing down your story in private can be really helpful for people's you know, mental and even physical health um, because it does sort of help you sort those things out in your mind and that kind of thing. But there's a difference between that and getting up on a stage in front of people and telling your story to people. I mean, I think um, that connection is an important part, but I, I completely agree that, that <laughs> that's not the first, you know, it shouldn't be the first time you're dealing with, with those issues. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw breaking the traffic, I snatched my hand free and darted across the street. And I I did manage to get across without being hit by a car. But what I didn't fully appreciate was, in our neighborhood, there there were no sidewalks. On each side of the street, there were simply deep drainage ditches. And when there'd been a heavy rain, as there had been a night before, you couldn't tell exactly where the street ended and where the ditch began. And if you took one step too many, as I did, you would go headlong into the water. And so I did a 10-year-old non-swimmer in water over his head. And I remember, and this might sound strange, but I remember that I wasn't afraid. I didn't thrash. I was simply overcome by a sense of resignation. I thought, well, I guess this is the end. (laughs) It's been a good 10 years. (laughs) And I prepared to go home, as it were, and meet my maker. And as, as I hung there in a limp jellyfish float, uh, waiting to meet my maker, I soon felt the strong hands of Scotty Compton, uh, in front of whose house uh, I had fallen in, Scotty Compton being one of the uh, teenage boys in the neighborhood. And I felt his strong hands lift me out of the water and hand me over to my grandmother, who led me by the hand back home and got me out of my wet clothes and beat the shit out of me. <laughs> And she did that not out of anger, but out of fear. Uh, As she had stood there watching me in the water, she also a non-swimmer, not really knowing what to do, she had seen something that no parent, or in her case grandparent, ever wanted to see. She saw her child 
in the grips of something potentially lethal that she felt powerless to get him out of. And that was terrifying for her. And that terror expressed itself in every single lash that I got that morning. So I would never, ever do that again. And as an aside, she told me later that while I floated down the stream... So I think the final rule that I personally would convey to storytellers is know the stakes. That is, something needs to be at stake for at least one of the characters in the story. And I I know that when you go to the Moth website, uh, that's one of the pieces of advice there. Uh, What's at stake? It can be money. It can be love. It can be acceptance. It can be reputation. But there needs to be something that hangs in the balance for someone. Uh, And sometimes what seems like it is what seems at first to be at stake may turn out not to be what's at stake. And so, Peter, I use the story you told at the corner as an example where at the beginning of that story, what seems to be at stake is whether the young version of you is going to prevail against the bully. But as the story continues, we at least what I saw as at stake at a deeper level was whether and how you were going to connect with your father. So I'm going to start with Tara. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a lesson that you would also convey to uh, novice storytellers is to be aware of what's at stake? Oh yeah. That's, that's number one. You know, I mean, to me, that would be the number one. If I had a, you know, how to, it would be start off with thinking about the stakes. And like you said, they can, they can change, you know, you can, you can offer up something that seems like that's, that's the higher stake. Right. Uh, and then we're going to find out that it's maybe something else, but the, but the stakes are, definitely the most important yeah yeah i agree with that too if it doesn't if if you try to play off the importance for comedy of what's happening there then what who cares like it just if if it's if nothing is if there's nothing that could be lost or nothing that could be gained in the story if it's just here's some goofy thing that happened to me nobody who who cares yeah like that's it's got to matter there's a reason why you told it and if 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 you're just downplaying the emotional importance of what you're doing because you want to be cool, none of us are cool. Like the second you start trying to be cool, then nothing matters. And then you shouldn't be telling it. That's yeah. It's, it's all got to matter. Yeah. I think I would agree. If you look back at the classic story structures, there's always that conflict of, of some sort. And I'm reminded, um, I worked with uh, Jeff Polish, who runs a storytelling series called The Monty down in Durham, North Carolina. And he talks about somehow new, when, sometimes when new storytellers come in, you know, they think they know what story they're telling. But then as they work on it and get into it, they realize that there's really something different going on there. And so sometimes finding that core about what this really is about, what the stakes really are, it's, it can be a process to get there. You mentioned story structure. Um, does anyone want to offer advice to a new teller on how to structure a story? I mean, I would think I've said to a couple of people, and I, I don't know if you guys disagree with it, but I would say when you're starting off to stick with stick with stories where you're in the present, you know, like we, we talk about flashing flashbacks and flash forwards and all that stuff. But I think that's kind of, you know, that's, you know, that's a territory for a, se- a more seasoned person, you know, like when you're really first starting off, if you can stick in like a present, when you're in that present moment, uh, those, that would be a good place to, that's a good place to start, you know, kind of get you, get you chopped before you start jumping around all over the place. 
I agree with that. I think that's a good place to start. People sometimes they they'll, they'll say to me, "How do you how do you do that? How do you they, you know how do you, and I, it's my answer is always the same, and they think I'm bullshitting them, but it's really just you start at the beginning and you tell the truth, and like that that's as simple as that. And like, but but how do you do it? When you start at the beginning and you tell the truth, and uh, but they don't want to believe it because it, it really is that simple. But like as far as like narrative structure. Like, I think, Michael, I've, I've talked to you about this and you've, you've heard me talk about it, but like, this is something that I, I stole from a teacher and he stole it from his teacher and she stole it from her teacher, but it's that old, uh, it's, it's older than time of, of, you know, once upon a time there was a girl named Jill and every day she did this and every day she did this and then one day this happened and because of that, uh, she did this and because of that her life was changed forever. And, you know, like, even if it was a small change, things were changed through the experience. And that's, that's simply the, you know, the platform and then of, of who you were, we want to, we want to know who you were. And then we want to know the catalyst. And then one day this happened. That's not the center of the story. The center of the story is the next thing. That's the choice. Uh, what did you do? Your reaction or your choice? What did you do? And uh, which shows how much autonomy and power we actually have in our lives. Our stories are really about our choices, not about the things that happen to us. And then after that is like the, you know, the, the aftermath, like what, what's different now? Um, you know, if, if that's every story uh, from the beginning of time. It, it tells us a little bit of who you were, a little bit of, and then what you did in the face of this moment, and then who you were after. But if you can, if you can have all or most of those pieces in your story, uh, you should be able to identify them in the story a little bit. Then everything should be clear, and that's a, it's a, that's a good place to start. I think. I've seen a lot of novice storytellers who just deliver the platform in the event, or sometimes just yeah. the event. That that is, they 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 start at the beginning and they tell us the truth of what happened to them, and then it's over. It, would your yeah. advice be to get really good at that? and then start to build out the choice in the aftermath or even from the beginning as a novice? To try well, I mean, what's wrong with it? It's the difference between, I think one of the things I see a novice storyteller do a lot is, uh, and in the end I learned. And like, that's, you know, I'm guilty of that at, at times as well, you know, um, because sometimes in the end you learn something, but like, instead of in the end I've learned it, you know, they want to tell us the moral, what we should take away from the story. Instead of be like, and I never went back to that job again. Or, you know, after that, I, you know, I made sure to visit my, my aunt's grave once a year. It made me feel better. Thank you. You know what I mean? Like, they just give us something that tells us how you're different at the end than you were at the beginning. And that, that, that reinforces the importance of your choices in the middle. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? But what, is, what, what you we're essentially saying here, even though it's storytelling, is show, don't tell, you know? Melanie, I have a question for you, uh, and it, it's about a model, uh, so a theory that I saw you reference at the beginning of one of your papers. And the model is the distancing-embracing model, which will explain what the distancing-embracing model is and why it might matter for people's reactions to true first-person stories. Right. So this is a model that suggests that one of the exciting things that art or stories can do is that it can sort of help us, in a sense, find this emotional balance. And so the idea is that 
when we're confronted with negative things in life, you know, stories of suffering and trouble and so on, we kind of want to push back from that. We want to distance because we have this inherent sort of preference for feeling good and, and positive things. So we're like, oh, let's, let's look away from that. And so there's some distance there. But then when something's in a story, when something's in art, it, it pulls us in, like with the transportation that we've talked about. And so it allows us to sort of embrace and experience that, that kind of event. And then there's, so the idea is that stories, I mean, the original model focuses on fiction, but I don't know if that's essential here. But it kind of allows us to find that place where we're close enough that we can sort of think about and experience these things without it being so close that it's like overwhelming and, you know, we're just a complete emotional mess or so distant that we're sort of like, no, I don't care about this. This isn't touching me at all. It allows us to come to that, that place in the middle. And so just as a follow-up, Melanie, when I first was reading uh, some of your thoughts on this, I wondered if fiction might be less overwhelming for readers or listeners than live, true first-person storytelling, because in the latter case, it's true, and so that eliminates some distance because it's actually in this world that we live in, and the person to whom it happened is standing right there in front of you. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It kind of takes away some of those guardrails, so to speak. Um, so yeah, it, I think it would make that, that distancing piece a little more difficult. And I, But I think that maybe moves back to something that we were talking about earlier, that when when you have a storyteller who's you know, up there and they're, you know, kind of in control of the stage and they're talking about that. I wonder if maybe that kind of helps too, because you're like, okay, there's a, there's a structure here and here's this person and whatever they've been through, they've survived it because they're here in front of me. Yeah. I'm sort of making this up as I go along, but you could imagine that that might be part of, of helping with that balance or that op- optimal distance as well. No, you're absolutely right that with fiction, it's, it's easy to step back. You're like, oh, okay, this thing was awful, but it's not real. But um, you don't have that with the first-person live storytelling. Tara and Peter, I guess the version of this question that I would put to you is, when you have seen audience members go up to storytellers after they've done really hard stories, or for yourself, if you've told really hard stories and if audience members have come up to you has the typical reaction been one that suggests that no despite my worries that audience members would be overwhelmed it's been a positive experience for them to hear you tell those stories i I, yeah i can't say i've had anybody ever come up and say i hated you i I hated (laughs) that you did that like they don't generally they don't generally do that um i think the distinction comes in between uh, they want to come up and say, thanks for doing that. Uh, thanks for telling me that. That meant a lot to me. And that is cool. Or they might uh, come up and say, uh, you know what? I had a, a really tough time with my dad, and I want to tell you all about it right now. And like that, that's generally somewhat unwelcome because I just got done, and I can't carry another one. You know what I mean? Uh, 
but but generally it's uh if somebody comes up to you there people are always very i think grateful that someone else might have been able to say the say the thing in a way that they haven't been able to say i get that experience a lot with the there's a story i told uh with my wife for uh ted for ted med uh, i think it was in 2000 must have been in 2013 and um about my wife has epilepsy and and we told a story together about an experience with her epilepsy and and the two of us have gotten emails and and social media messages from people all over the world that have said i've never been able to explain it to people before and i know you know thank you for it's so hard to explain what this feels like to people dealing with this condition and now i don't have to try anymore i can just like play them your story and like that feels really good you know because you help somebody get some shorthand you know you help them maybe clarify their own thoughts a little bit. And I think, I think if someone is going to come up to you afterwards, like they, it's because they, they want to, you know, kind of commiserate rather than tell you that you shouldn't have done what you did. I guess that's, that's my experience. Yeah, I agree with Peter. I mean, I think, you know, certainly, but, but, you know, you kind of have to rule out when people come up to you, right? If they're coming up to me, they're, they're you know, they're, they're certainly not going to somebody they don't like me. I mean, or at least I haven't had that experience. But it's a little more interesting is to observe, you know, because I'm hosting shows or whatever, is to observe, you know, kind of people going up to one of the other storytellers, let's say, in the show, or just people's chit-chat, you know, on their way out of the theater and i have to say i've been thinking about it while you guys were talking and i've never heard somebody say wow that guy cried so much i hated it you know um you know i've never overheard that you know uh, amongst audience members the only thing i've ever heard sort of a negative comment on is that thing i mentioned earlier which is the feigning of emotion like i've heard people say like well, something felt false to me in in that you know display of emotion but you you know it's it's i i think people can almost always tell that was genuine he was in the moment he got teary you know and uh and it was powerful you know it was powerful um so i yeah i've not seen a negative reaction you know unless it's something that really seemed feigned and and that only you know has maybe happened once or twice too you know that i've seen what have we not covered what other advice would you give to a novice storyteller um, all right, I'll give you one, one more, and I don't know, to some people it's controversial, but, you know, I learned to tell stories really telling, you know, growing up in bars, and in bars, you know, a guy who, let's say, you know, Big Joe, right, Big Joe is going to tell you the same fucking story every Saturday night for 20 years, right, um, and it will be the most amazing story you ever heard. Um, and in some ways, you know, it's because he's told it every night for Saturday, you know, every Saturday night for 20 years. Right. Um, so I'm a proponent of telling it a lot, you know, trying it at parties, trying it with your friends, you know, and seeing how it goes. Like, I, I don't think that, you know, some people think like, oh, it should be very fresh and, and right off the cuff. And I'm like, you know, in my life, the best storytellers I ever knew, which are guys like Big Joe, they, they, they told them a million times, you know, and they got better and they were, you know, you know, yes, in some ways, quote unquote, memorized, right? Because, but um, they would tell them over and over again, and they always was something new, something fresh. They were always in the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, that that would be my my advice. Don't be afraid to like you know work it out a lot. You know. Yeah, I think um, 
I'm still reflecting back on what Peter was saying about the story with the epilepsy. And I think that's one of the things is that people should just keep in mind that, that these things matter to people. You know, someone telling your story can connect with someone else, can give someone else words for things, can open people's minds to the world. And so it's an important thing to do. And I think, yeah, if people have that interest, they should go for it. I would, I would say, uh, to a storyteller to not be overly concerned uh, with the reaction that they think they're getting from the audience, uh, that their first responsibility is not to the audience. They're, they're not going to know what people are thinking. It's not like comedy where like you get an immediate laugh and you know that your goal is accomplished. I think your responsibility is to the story. Uh, and if you can, and that sets you free because then all you got to do is make sure you honor the story. You don't have to honor anything else but the story. And if you're doing that with, with as much honesty as you can, um, then you're going to be doing it quote unquote correctly. Um, that would, that would be, that would be, I think the biggest thing. Yeah. If I can just chime in, Michael and I are both teachers and I think we would definitely second the fact that, you can't always tell what's going through an audience's mind just by <laughs> Never. how they're looking yeah. out there. Yeah. Because your responsibility to the piece is over once it comes out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Like it just, your, your, your job is just to get it out and like, you know, live through it. And it's, you can't tell people how to feel. You can't tell people what to think. You can't manipulate people. They're going to, they're going to feel the way they feel about it. And that's completely out of your control. And once you hold on to that, then you're unstoppable. You know, like like Big Joe at the bar, he's he's just telling the story because not because he's trying to get scores at a, a moss show or a book deal. He maybe wants to just make somebody laugh or just have maybe somebody will buy him a drink after. Or he just loves the sound of his own voice. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Peter, Tara, and Melanie for taking the time to talk with me. Check out tatter.fireside.fm and go to the page for this episode for links to information about each of them. I also want to thank Cody LaMontagne for letting me share part of her story of dancing in Havana. As always, to offer feedback on this or any episode of Tatter, use Twitter, and the handle is at Tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review there. To offer monetary support, go to patreon.com slash tatter, where you can do the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee or a beer once a month, and I would appreciate either. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.